The Tablet Show, episode 92, with guest Sean Wildermuth. Recorded live Friday, June 21st, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Sean Wildermuth about his experiences building mobile applications. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support, online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell, correctly identifying the show today, Ah, The Tablet Show, not dotnet rocks it's kind of like dotnet rocks only different only different there you go how are you buddy i'm uh i'm super good i just got news i was just reading about the new samsung ative book 9 plus oh boy which is an awful name but it's the series 9 sam like there's two great ultra books right there's the yeah. ux series from asus mm-hmm. and there's the samsung series 9 yeah you know so thin you can cut a box open with them da 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 yeah yeah the new one that they just announced is uh, not only the Haswell chipset, which mm-hmm. is awesome, and 256 gigs of SSD and 8 gigs of RAM. Right. The screen, it's a 13-inch screen, sort of typical Ultrabook size. Yeah. 3,200 by 1,800. Wow. That is pretty damn high resolution. That's very cool. That is, yeah, way up there. So, uh, yeah, I think I must need to own this. You must need to. I must need to own this. Yes, please. Well, good. That sounds fun. It's gadgety. I've been uh, head down in a new project to um, do do a um, HTML based file uploader. Yes, and uh, I ran into a little snag, but uh, I'll, I'll talk about it on Better No Framework, which is coming up right now. All right, buddy. Hit me. First of all, what I'm going to share isn't specific to my project. But I stumbled across this website in, you know, looking to find out what browsers had support. Right. And I know that this is something we talk about a lot on the show is like, how do you know what browsers support what features? Right. Well, there's this great website called caniuse.com. Awesome. Check it out. Caniuse.com. You do a search. And so, like, I searched for file reader because that's a part of the file API that I wanted to check. And it gives you a chart and it says, you know, what versions of what browsers support it and which ones are current, which ones are near future, which ones are farther future and which ones don't support it. And it's a nice little table that you get, i.e. Firefox, Chrome, Safari, Opera, iOS, Safari, Opera, Mini, Android browser and Blackberry browser. So there you go. And you notice that Windows Phone IE is not in there anywhere. Huh. Not sure why. That's interesting. Yeah. And so the reason that I was looking for it is because a couple of years ago, I mean, three years ago, HTML5 got this great file API. Yeah. And the file API is just what you think it is. Now, here's the thing. People are concerned about security, but you can't use just any file. You can't go fishing for files. You can't look for particular files. It all has to be initiated by the user. So the user selects a file. But once you've done that, the user's officially given you permission to do whatever it is you want to do with that file. Sure. So you can read it. You can read it in chunks. You can read binary data. You can read text data. 
And what my code is doing is turning those chunks into base 64 strings and and sending them through uh, you know a JSON call, through an AJAX call with jQuery uh, to a server, which is a web API server then is going to reassemble those into files. And along the way, you get progress and all that stuff. So the, the, this really cool feature that's been lacking in browsers for a long time, which is access to files that the user says you can have access to. Sure. Yeah, you don't want access to any old thing. They got to specify. But get this, drag and drop. Right. Love drag and that's drop. That's part of it. Drag and drop is part of it. So That's cool. Yeah. So caniuse.com is the star of today's show. Awesome. Check it out. Who's talking to us, Richard? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 88. That's the panel discussion we did at DevTeach on the state of mobile development. Right. Which was really a fun show. And uh, this comment comes from uh, Nikolaj Skov, who says, Hi, great show. I pretty much listen to every podcast. I heard you talking about the different mobile platforms, and you called Android a platform by developers for developers. Mm. That's true, and I love being a hobby Android developer, but you also said Android is pretty much too difficult and frustrating to use for normal people. I don't agree with this, and I think you're wrong. Since Ice Cream Sandwich and with Android devices now, they are easy to use as iOS and Windows phone devices. It's just a matter of which mobile flavor you like. Exactly. Both both my father and father-in-law are using Android devices, but they are not super geeky developer types. Yeah. I use my non-scientific spot the phone during the commute test to see which devices are most popular. Previously, it was all iPhones, but now it's 50-50 iPhones and Samsung Android devices. Mm. Maybe it's just us Danes that can figure out Android devices, but I'm thinking the rest of the world is just as smart. Well, there you go. And did I actually say that? Because, you know, my, my problem with Android is that the carriers are customizing it to the point where they're making the phone they want you to have, not the phone you want to have. Right. And it, but if you're a real geeky person, you, you can rip all that away. You know, I, and I'll flatly admit, one of my daughters, I got myself a bare bones Nexus 4 because I wanted to spend time with Android. And after a few weeks, I said, okay, well, now I get it. Now make it go away. Mm. Uh, and she loves it. She's taken that phone over. I don't think I'll ever see it again. But it, uh, the big thing for me was that because you were able to customize it the way you want it, you can really personalize it. I just think it's really hard to do when you have a carrier lockdown phone. Yeah. And, you know, it used to be the case that it was the realm of geeky hobbyists and people who like to flash their phones and get the latest rev and stuff. You know, just ask my brother, right? And those people still exist, yeah. right? It, it's a cult of, you know, running on the beta bits of Android. Yeah. And it's fun. So, that you know, there's a lot of people who like that also uh, tend to be lower cost, right? And apps tend to be free. And, you know, a lot of stuff tends to be free in that community. And that's, uh, that's one of the themes that comes up on the tablet show is that not a lot of people make money writing apps for Android phones yeah. and devices. Interesting challenge. Yeah. Regardless, uh, Nikolaj, uh, a tablet show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, you can write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com. Yay. Round of applause for Nikolaj. Woohoo. How about that? You got the clappers I got out. The huh? clappers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, let's uh, introduce our guest, Sean Wildermuth, um, a ten-time Microsoft MVP in ASP.NET and IIS, and he's involved with Microsoft as a Data Insider and ASP.NET Insider. Sean is also the author of several books and author of eight Pluralsight courses. He's one of the Wilder Minds at WilderMinds.com or at his blog at wildermuth.com, W-I-L-D-E-R-M-U-T-H.com. Welcome back, Sean. Thank you. How are you guys doing? Great. It's always great to talk to you. You know why? Because you've always been sort of a mobile guy, whether it was, you know, Silverlight before 
and now web stuff and web design and responsive design. You got into XAML quite a bit, and uh, now we're just mobile people. We are. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, everyone's mobile people now. That's right. Mobile is everywhere. So this is what you really want to talk about is designing for mobile first. Yeah, that's that's something that uh, I uh, started looking into a, a few months ago when I was uh, um, chastised by um, a couple of people about some of the responsive uh, talks I was giving where uh, they were, uh, you know, kind of talking about how, you know, uh, using typical responsive design was making these websites heavier for phones in the one place where you can't have heavy Right, and so uh, I started going down this path of 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 uh, mobile first responsive design, and I really liked the concept, and I've you know embraced it in in a pretty big way. Uh, though it takes more time, it takes more effort, and so a lot of times with developers, when you're giving this you know talk and talking to them about how to do this mobile first, they're like, um, "Can't I just get a template and have it all okay?" And yeah. I, I I'm using Bootstrap; that should be enough, right? <laughs> yeah. So the idea is not that you want your websites that you access from a desktop browser to be limited and look like mobile sites. It's that when you design with the idea that, you know, space is limited and we want to send as few bytes down to the phone as we want, as we can. And uh, when you come at it from that angle, you end up using tools and libraries and things that are much more efficient. Yeah, the, the big difference here is whether you're building up or tearing down. So uh, typically people have been building the, you know, the desktop experience and then trying to turn stuff off. Right. So using JavaScript or using uh, CSS to go, uh, let's make that disappear and let's make, let's not use this part of a piece of JavaScript that we've already downloaded to the browser, but we'll pretend that we're not really using it. And let's, you know, hide the giant image that we downloaded, you know, already and show the the smaller image uh, on the device. Mm. And uh, so, and that philosophy works, and you can get these experiences. But when you have any sort of latency, you usually have issues with sort of startup of the page. And a lot of a lot of us have gone to a web page on a phone and gone, "Why is it taking so long?" Just to all I want to know is, you know, right. who uh, Britney Spears is dating now. <laughs> yeah. Come on, yeah. What are you doing in there? But yeah, yeah you know, I got a reference. Uh, an old Strange Loop site, which is now a Radware site called Web Performance Today. Uh, in the past two years, according to HTTP Archive, page size is double. Huh. Yeah. It was it was about a, a, the average page size. So I mean, uh, HTTP Archive literally archives the, as much of the web as they physically can, which is a lot of it. They're now talking in in 2013, average page size of the like top 1,000 sites, 1.2 megs per page. Wow. I'm just wondering if we're, you know, phones are just getting buried under the bloat. Well, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be in in that uh, many people, especially in sort of the first world countries, have, you know, pretty big bandwidth. And so they can handle the the download. The, my bigger concern is that we're dealing with smaller processors on devices. So you're still parsing all the CSS. You're still parsing the JavaScript. Right. Even if you can handle the extra bandwidth, you're asking it to do more work, uh, you know, to render these pages by turning stuff off. And the whole idea of, of mobile first is have that default experience be the mobile one so that it's nice and small. And then you can, you know, start downloading and adding to the page as you figure out it's a, it's a larger or more performant 
mm. uh, um, experience. Mm. And the side effect is that on a regular web browser, then you quickly get a page because it's, it's quite light and then you'll fill it in. Yeah, essentially. That's kind of cool, man. I like that. It's an yeah. interesting thought. Well, and it does keep you honest, right? It keeps you, uh, you with an eye towards efficiency, which is really what, you know, we have to start developing here. Yeah, and it, it makes the mobile experience, because it's becoming such an important one, a first-class one. It's not something you're going to do at the end of the project and hope you're going to be able to shoehorn in, uh, which is a, what, what's happening a lot. People go, oh, responsive design, let me just throw some media queries in in the 34 CSS files we're trying to shoehorn into our yeah. you know, SharePoint-hosted site and make nice. it work, and it just, and it doesn't. We took the opposite approach with .netrocks.com. We, we wanted the as few bits as possible to go to the web. It wasn't about looking good. It was about a list of shows, the data, and the links to the files. And, you know, nobody's really complained about that because, after all, that's what they want. They just want to get to the show they want and listen yep. to it, you know. Absolutely. But, you know, we did suffer in the style <laughs> category, that's for sure. It's not a very beautiful mobile website, but it does do the job. Well, as long as there's no rounded corners, I think you're okay. <laughs> So we all we're all sort of in agreement here. It's like mobile separate isn't the right answer. It's got to be mobile first. Um, I think this is a case by case basis. Really, mm -hmm. there are occasions where mobile separate is a is a fine solution because what you're delivering is very different. And uh, uh, mo uh, m facebook com is actually a really good example of this. It's so complex that trying to pare down what they wanted on the mobile site versus the full Facebook would be silly. And so having a separate experience makes sense. Yeah. All right. So it's a good idea. We're all in agreement. So what does it mean? What What do you have to do? And you say it's a little more work. How much more? Well, there's a, a couple of pieces here. One is that uh, instead of having uh, CSS files with media queries that are all sorted together and that are taking apart, you have to build your CSS in the opposite order so that the uh, media queries are about larger devices, not about smaller devices. So if people are used to doing responsive design with media queries, really what they're doing is they're saying, okay, the default site is the default CSS. And if the screen is larger than 768, do this. And when it's larger than 1024, do this. And when it's larger than 1120, do this. And when it's larger than 2500 for, you know, uh, for retina displays, do this. And so it's, it's reversing the order of the way they've been used to, you know, doing CSS. In addition, you're going to download, uh, libraries like JavaScript and even additional CSS based on those screen sizes in, in JavaScript. So you're going to be doing more, uh, on demand loading of some of those assets. And you use the term media query, and that is an official term. It is. It's part of the CSS spec. Just tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So a media query is essentially a way that I can define a rule in CSS to say when certain uh, uh, characteristics of the browser are present, apply new parts of the CSS. So there are media queries for uh, when uh, this is a print view. So um, when someone's about to print a website, use this CSS. When uh, someone's on the screen, do this. And the ones that are most popular for responsive design are the screen size. So you can say when screen size is a certain width, and that's sort of a detection scheme that's out there uh, to figure out whether you're on mobile. Because it doesn't matter if the browser is in a small window, you're going to have the same problem as you are, you know, you have on a on a phone. Mm. 
so that you uh, can use the cascading nature of CSS to say, oh, here is the, you know, the font size for my website. But when the screen size is larger, let's make the font larger. Or when the screen size is really large, let's use a different font. It allows you to apply rules that are going to override the default rules when certain characteristics are present, like screen size. You know, funny, of course, I'm a web performance guy. So suddenly I realized, hey, you're proliferating CSS files here. And I've been advocating consolidating them. But I guess this is the trade. If you want to get rid of the weight up front, which is fast but heavy, Mm -hmm. you got to deal with this idea that you're going to keep loading stuff as you learn more about the environment you're working in. Correct. Correct. Uh, In some cases, mobile first, if you don't have a ton of CSS, it's just as easy to consolidate them into a a single file, and the media queries will do the work. You're going to be loading more things on a mobile device, but most of them are going to be ignored. So there is, there is, you know, sort of a a fulcrum point of do I on demand load because I have a lot of this stuff, or do I just go ahead and leave it in a single file because I want the the transfer rate to be easy. Mm. Are the media queries going to live in the main page itself? No, they'll be in usually the either the main CSS or one of the on-demand loaded CSS. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think I'd want to get that that piece of CSS in as quickly as possible to get, and then you can sort of make an assessment. You've probably got two or three or four different core configurations that you could load a block of CSS up for. Mm. Right, right. And that's, and that's typically what's done is when you, you know, sort of detect based on those sizes, you can pull in that CSS. Right. The CSS is less important because it tends to not be as large as JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the good examples is making uh, the phone version not use jQuery at all. Right. And I know that's, you know, scary for developers. No, it's true. And then, yeah. And then when you're on a desktop, go, okay, now we can benefit from some of the jquery Maybe we're going to use some... Uh, cool libraries, and then load those on demand because the parsing and then the execution of those are what tends to really slow down. And uh, that's usually the first impression of your website. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Also, moving things like uh, taking images and moving them inline into CSS can also help with some of this because of the the round tripping you're going to run into with um, having to download a lot of files, especially, you know, in intermittent uh, phone connections, which is Less common today, but it's something to, that a lot of developers are moving towards. This is where you can actually, for an image in a CSS, instead of pointing at, it, at an URL, you can base64 encode the image and include it you know, in line in the actual CSS document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you really got my head spinning here, Sean, because on one hand, it's because we make a nice lightweight page, I can get that sort of time-to-first-bite look at the site really quickly. And then, then the media queries kick in and there's sort of a second round that richens it up based on what platform I'm on. Right. But if you're on the phone, the phone's got it. Yeah. And it's really based on things like screen size and orientation. Actually, orientation comes in less often because screen size usually is enough. Yeah. So, sure. you know, uh, normally you'd have, you know, something like a 480 screen size for small Android phones, except when they turn them sideways. And then, you know, that the 768 width probably kicks in because, mm. because they're that tall. And so, uh, you know, with responsive design in general, you usually don't have to worry as much about, about, about orientation because you're really, you're sort of getting lucky because a large phone might be 768 and you're going to have the same experience as you would on a small phone 
that may be tilted. Right. Yeah. Isn't this just one number screen width? Um, yeah, almost always. And it's really browser width. So the one thing we're getting lucky here is that the si- the width of the browser on phones is uh, or tablets are the width of the device. So this also means that when I'm testing, I can test by simply changing the size of my browser on the desktop. And wh- I can see this happen. Right. Mm. Well, you know, I'm I'm on your blog page, and when I, you know, make the screen the the browser window bigger and smaller, I could see, hey, look, responsive design, and it's yep. it's a bunch of little things, right? It's uh, suddenly yep. the right hand bar drops out, and the pictures get a little smaller, and you just sort of shuffle stuff around so that you're tolerant to to losing uh, that space. You're also uh, adding the experience of. Uh, making some changes. You can see on my blog, when you make it small enough, the menu becomes a, a, a select dropdown instead right. of instead of uh, buttons that take up a lot more space. And so the experience on the phone, you know, actually select is really is really friendly to touch and gives a you know a, a much better experience to to that, especially on phones that you know sort of full screen the selection list. I miss this. There used to be a picture on your blog. It was your face. It was. It was, it was a very curious face, <laughs> but uh, it's not here anymore. I miss it. There's a sequel coming. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, and, and and it'll be a uh, a responsive design sequel, I presume. <laughs> yes, it will not load on phones because, unfortunately, it's going to be another animated GIF, and it's uh, it's just going to be too big. Unfortunately, it's too costly. I yeah. well, and but interesting decision point like your name on your blog with the with the subtext, the raving rants, mm-hmm. and then after a certain size, it shrinks down and the the subtext goes away. Right. Like there is a bunch of design thought that went into what do I do at this size? How many phases have you got here? Four. I believe there's four. Okay. If I if I think back to it, are there magic numbers? Uh, pr- pretty typically, because uh um uh. In Firefox, uh, there's a, a plugin called the web, uh, web Developer Toolbar, which a lot of people are, are using. And there's a cool feature in there that says View Responsive Sizes. And what it will do is load the existing page you're on in, uh, in six different or five different um, iframes. I don't remember the exact number. And these are the canonical sizes of different devices. And so you can actually see a website in all these different forms to see whether they work in the non-desktop version. And so typically it's, you know, 480 or larger, 768 or larger, 1024 larger. Uh, I think it's 1120 if my memory is correct. And then often you'll have another size at uh, 2500 or larger for retina displays. Right. Now, retina displays aren't just more resolution, they're uh, also higher pixel count. And so one of the challenges with Retina is swapping out your images for images that are twice as uh, dense. This goes nicely into my comment at the top of the show here. I was talking about that 13-inch display that's 3,200 pixels wide. Yeah. Let's dig into the. I don't know that I've got my head all the way around. What are we supposed to be doing with images? Well, in on those larger displays, on those um, uh, more pixel dense displays, we're supposed to be uh, including images that are are higher DPI. DPI right. is 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 the trick there to make them look good, is because uh, you know if, if a lot of the, your listeners probably have Retina displays on one of their devices, and if you don't do that extra work of making these higher DPI 
which are larger images, work, the text comes out really crisp because it's on these high DPI, and then your images tend to look fuzzy next to them. Right. And and so typical web image these days is, what, 72 DPI or 96 yeah. DPI? Yeah, and typically you're going to go up to – it's usually about making the image larger in order to do this because you're, you're going to still fit it in the same space, but it's going to be two pic- uh, um, um one, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, two pixels per, you know, per size. So if you right. typically wanted a hundred wide, the core image should be 200 wide. Because what a lot of the retina displays are doing is they're, you know, uh, they're, uh, uh doubling the p- pixel ratio for you. Yeah. They're, they, I mean, they're pushing up to around 300 DPI on these image, on these screens yeah. now. Yeah. So do you actually want to match that with your image or just half of that? As much as you can. There, again, there's that fulcrum point of I can make my image look really good or I can make it actually load in a time that doesn't make the user go away. Yeah, load today. Well, if somebody's got a retinal display and they're hitting sites that take advantage of it, they're used to waiting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I would also, the other side of this is that retinal displays aren't on phones, right? They're on Ultrabooks and they probably got a fair bit of bandwidth to play with. But that's not really true. The retina displays on iPhone, the retina displays on the Galaxy 4. Right. Uh, they're not called retinas, but they're these high 250 to 350 DPI. Even the, even the, uh, uh, 920s, you know, technically a retina display because it's 276 DPI. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I take it back. We do have phones that are DPI, uh, that, that are, are these retina levels as well as now we're starting to get laptops like this too. Yeah. This portion of the tablet show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources, such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the tablet show. So, Sean, I get it that you really need to build up, you know, instead of tear down in order to make this stuff right. But it also supposes that the or assumes that the the people doing the development have the chops to be able to build something from scratch without the help of a a bootstrap or you know great CSS files that I can just download because you look at something in it with a CSS Zen Garden or something like that you're like okay yeah I'll grab that CSS file and it's got a million things in it you have to know what to to rip out in order to to start with anything in other words that's not going to happen so you really have to have the chops to be able to build from the ground up. And that means a sort of sort of creative technical brain that I know you have, but how many other, you know, designer developers can do that? 
Well, it's it's becoming more and more. And in fact, a lot of the sort of pre-built templates you can buy are are specifying that they're mobile-first templates, not just responsive templates. Okay. And this has been sort of a maturation. Uh, this is something that you know good web dev- designers uh, today are doing pretty well. And it really involves more of the design mind than it does the developer mind to get sure. this right. And so if you're if you're on a team where it's you building the website yourself, this may be a very big challenge. And I don't have any, you know, trepidations about saying you might be able to get away with typical responsive design or going out to Bootswatch and getting a responsive template, and that may be good enough. But for yeah. really first class experiences out there, uh, you you're going to want to look for either working with designers that are understand this problem and, and, and want it to be good, understand the problem yourself and have enough aesthetic sense to be able to do it. It's a real challenge to people who develop by way of, you know, Googling or binging something that they're looking Absolutely. for and then copying and pasting and say, oh, that works and that doesn't. I mean, that's the stand. That's the way that development is done these days. Don't you think? Especially, you are, know. When- are we are we really talking about you, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't me. It was him. <laughs> yeah, hey, but you, there are some standard metaphors here. Like you, you, your menu bar on your blog condensing down into that button. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty typical metaphor. That's very cut and pasteable. It is. It is. And in fact, when I uh, when I talk to people about this, I start doing the demo using a website called Initializer. Uh, an I N I T. Uh, it's missing the E before the R. I don't remember how to pronounce, uh, spell it's, it off the top of my head. Because web people can't spell? Yeah, I don't know <laughs> what the deal is. But, um, Modernizer has, had the same problem. Yeah. Same, same thing. They love dropping <laughs> vowels. Uh, I, I, I would blame it on being Eastern European. No, but, it's because the domain name wasn't available. That's really I, what it's all about. <laughs> but but it uh now allows you to create a brand new uh you know starter uh boilerplate template either mobile first or using bootstrap and so it it's actually a good place for people even if they're not starting brand new to see what it looks like because it's it's a pre-built very simple version of mobile first so you can see how the different pieces are put together you know in in 20 minutes it's nice it's, there's, there's not a lot of there and you can see what they're doing about you know moving things around and 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 using these common metaphors with mobile first that work pretty well. I wanted to believe that it was just browser width that was the important thing, but as soon as we start playing with the image problem, now you care about DPI. Mm-hmm. Yep, but I think you also care about bandwidth. You do. Uh, the problem with bandwidth is it's harder to test for. Yeah, it's tough to measure. Yeah, because actually making that assessment of am I going to download this. Much higher, you know, higher DPI and consequently larger image. Yeah. Against your pipe today. And do I download it twice? Right. Do I actually, you know, use the, the default as the lower res image and then try to proactively load the higher res image and, and taking even more bandwidth? Right. There's a, there was a good study of, of websites that attempted to do responsive design and they saw that over half of them increased the size of their web pages by using responsive design, hmm. which which is baffling because the whole idea was trying to make it work on mobile devices better. But in that, in the in what they were trying to do, more than half of them made the mistake of of bloating the size of the website instead of improving it. Yeah, because it, in the end, it is more libraries, more code, more thinking yeah. to try and make it responsive. Yeah, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, I. I 
I'll take uh, plain old responsive design over mobile first if it means that more websites will do it because I am sick of double clicking on an article on msnbc.com or one of those to try to get the text big enough so I can actually read it on my phone. Yeah. Right. Yep. Because you have to know, you know, at some point you have that urgency of wanting to know who Britney Spears is dating. <laughs> well, don't we all? Yeah. 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 It's crucial. <laughs> but I, I also feel like this seems somewhat templatable, and then we can make demands of our to our designers of, I need two resolutions of the, each image. And is it only two? Is it like a low DPI and a high DPI, or do you need more than that? Usually two is enough. Um, sometimes you'll want a really low uh, DPI, uh, not DPI, but size for the phone, a uh, non-retina and then a retina version. But I've always gotten away with just two. Just having a you know a standard and a high DPI version because uh, going that extra length just wasn't worth the trouble. And when you're going to a smaller screen size, do you just change the image size itself? Don't load a different image. Typically, you don't load a different image because on the smaller screen, you're typically showing that smaller image, but right. um, it's taking more real estate. Uh, like yeah. you saw on my blog, you know it may have been really small initially, and then. On the mobile version, it's taking the entire width of the screen so that it's actually viewable. Yeah, it's just the interesting battle here. Just yeah, I don't know that responsive web design necessarily means small. Just being able to tolerate these different screen sizes. Yeah, because you are really tolerating different screen sizes. One of the things I try to teach people is when you go to the phone, it doesn't mean just making everything fit. It's about making it useful. So often on a phone, the font size is larger is, is one of the yeah. good examples, right? Cause you, it needs to be readable. Whereas you have, you know, the same size on a screen, you know, 11 pixel might be fine for the size, but you may pop it up to 14 or even 16 on a mobile device because people will tolerate scrolling more than they will squinting. Right. Ah, <laughs> good one. Yeah. Very well yeah. said. Yeah. May, it's it's okay to keep scrolling to any and actually I see this on your site how stuff that was side by side as this page gets narrower ends up going one below the other. Yeah, because the you want uh, vertical scrolling, horizontal scrolling is evil <laughs> on a device typically. Yeah, how do we explain Windows Phone then? Oh <laughs> man, <laughs> how about I paraphrase your statement there and say horizontal scrolling is evil on a web page. Right. We're really, we really are talking about the web. Yeah. It's just about the web pages. Yeah. In apps, it's a whole different sort of problem. And you see horiz uh, horizontal scrolling all over the place in apps because it's, right. it may, you know, regardless of platform, because it makes, it makes sense in a lot of cases where we're looking at sort of a virtual uh, um, uh, canvas on a, of a larger piece. So, Sean, you've done a bunch of PhoneGap stuff as well. How does PhoneGap and responsive web design mix together? Well, the cool thing there is since PhoneGap, for just to give the 10-second the idea of what PhoneGap is, PhoneGap is building apps for uh, across different platforms, uh, iOS, Android, Windows Phone, a bunch of other minor players out there, uh, and BlackBerry as well being able to build them using uh, web technology. So you're using HTML to design the web pages, you're using CSS to style them, and JavaScript to, to execute the code. Um, and it allows a way to get to some native code uh, through JavaScript APIs. 
So the cool thing with PhoneGap is that you're going to use those same techniques to make it work on different device sizes. You're just going to use responsive design in PhoneGap to say, oh, this is how I make it uh, the the um, different orientations work on phones, as well as this is how I can make it look better on a tablet versus a phone. Nice. So, I yeah. mean, because I would think you don't need responsive design as soon as you go, quote, native, because you know the size of the device. But you don't. You super don't, right? Because you're you're building one code base that should work on a an iPhone four and iPhone five and a uh, and both sizes of iPads, right? And Android tablets and and the four hundred and diff- different sizes of of Android phones. So uh, the responsive design comes in, you know, pretty pretty nicely there. And in fact. Those same resolutions, those same screen size differentiations work really well in doing PhoneGap because you have actually a smaller number, but a still a, a handful of these different size screen widths that you have to design against. Yeah, and it, 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 suddenly it's a huge advantage. You're not going to shift change much once you're loaded on a given machine, but just being able to have the, all that configuration there. To yeah. see, but everything works the same. That whole CSS loader behavior and stuff—you can do that inside of PhoneGap. You can, but you don't need to because it's all local. So um, the the difference between PhoneGap and you know web development is that PhoneGap is delivering HTML, CSS, and JavaScript right on the device. So you can do the loader stuff for things like JavaScript, but CSS and images because they're in memory on the device, you don't have any of the tuning for bandwidth problems. Because they're literally just pulling them off of disk. Right. Yeah, it's all part of your install now. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, it is using web technologies, but it's not using HTTP to go get those pieces of the website. It can, but usually you wouldn't. But but that really says, I really don't want to bother with a mobile-first design then. I can afford that heavy upfront hit because it's already on my machine. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So mobile-first becomes less important there because you're really b- building essentially a single-page app uh, on a on a device anyway, so it's going to be heavy heavier than a typical website because you're doing you know you're inter- integrating with a lot of the hardware you're you know detecting what operating system in some cases to change the look and feel you're yeah you know popping up and allowing them to take pictures or looking at even a real time view of the camera so you can do image capture I mean or things like scanners it's 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 quite robust in that sense in that. It is still running inside of a browser, but you know, all those assets are on, on uh, are right on the device. Yeah, um, you can still kill yourself by you know using too many JavaScript uh, um, um, libraries. You know, using even uh, uh, jQuery uh, uh, can kill you if you're using it really aggressively because it is you know it still is heavy on a phone. It's you don't have the download problem, but you still have the execution problem. Yeah, it's still a lot of code that you're running against. Yeah. And are you really sticking with one code base here that runs across all the devices, or do you actually end up making a build for iPhone, making a build for Android, milking build for BlackBerry, and so forth? Both. And I know that's not the answer you'd hoped for. Uh, but I expect no less from you. <laughs> so the, the HTML, CSS, and JavaScript are, are the same on, on the different platforms. You actually have to package them separately for each device. But okay. it is the same code base. Effectively, I'm using um, Adobe's PhoneGap build to hand them a zip that contains all my assets, and they're producing the APK and the IPA and the zap file, et cetera. 
Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, you've got one core code base. You ship it off to Adobe service and they spit you back the build for each of the platforms. Right. Right. And there are cases where in the code I'm saying if, uh, the device operating system is iOS, do this. And if it's Android, do this. There, there are almost always a couple of small little places where the differences of the platform will come in, but that represents, you know, a tiny percentage of the code. Most all the code is, is, shared amongst the platforms. The The challenge there is how do you make it look like the platform? And I used to think this was really important, and, and there are libraries out there like uh, Telerik's uh, Kendo Mobile actually adapts to the different platforms for you, and that's one of the reasons some people are using Kendo Mobile. I've changed my mind on this, and I've decided that it's become less important to look like the platform as as long as you look like what your app is. Uh, Facebook right. is a great example of this. Is Facebook app looks like a Facebook app no matter what platform you're on. Well, I think that's an interesting expectation for the customer is what's the stronger brand for that app? I mean, yeah. Facebook's an incredibly strong brand. Yeah. And and so if you know, especially for people switching if they're if they're used to it working on on the website this way, they're wanting the app to work in the same way. Or if they're coming from iOS and going to Android and bringing up Instagram, the Instagram's experience should be pretty similar. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's a valid point. I don't know. So the question is, what apps should look like the phone? Do you remember when this was a huge deal? Like I remember, you know, in, in the Microsoft world, we got design guidelines, right? File goes here and menu go, the menu goes over there and toolbar goes here. Like we had very strict UI design guidelines and felt like Apple started out that way, but clearly it's changed. Well, you know, that's the difference between a design guideline coming from a company like Microsoft or Apple and it coming out of, you know, the user base. what, What do people like? Well, we've learned these metaphors. We've learned these metaphors in app development and we've and kind of learned from each other. You know, the early platform apps all looked like the OS because that was the only example people had. And so right. there was a lot of sort of copying and there's a lot of especially on the uh, on Apple there was a lot of, you know, um trying to make things look uh uh like real world objects and then everyone kind of rebelled against that and um and so I think it's 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 very much a moving target, you know. In two years, who knows what it'll look like? Apple sort of mimicking the metroness in the in iOS seven, but in two years, you know, flat and square are going to be passe, and who knows what's going to be the new hotness? Are we talking about the fashionability of UI? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it's it speaks to an increasing sophistication of the users themselves. Jobs was really hung up on this skeuomorphic thing, which I think everybody now considers completely passe. Absolutely. I I will say that I never liked the idea of it. It made me a little crazy. I don't need stitching in my screen. Mm. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Let it go. The fact that Kindle on iOS now, you can turn on to be able to see the page flip, it just sort of offends me. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, you're going to use... My battery life in order to pretend that I'm turning an actual page. Can I see the back of the page? Because could we get that back? I mean, I'm waiting for the two-sided tablet so that I can read a book like I really read a book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, at the same time, I you know, for, for average mortals, giving a sense of motion so that you, you know where stuff goes, right? 
Mm-hmm. Like when you, when there are people there where you click on a button and the page disappears. They're like, where did it go? Where if yep. you slide it off the screen or fold it away, that makes all the difference for them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd agree there. I just the... Uh, Having to have that 3D representation of the of the tip page turn just felt just felt weird. Just felt weird to me. But you know, I'm not I'm not the average uh, the average user by far. You started the show talking about you know uh, the the question uh, from one of the uh, um, I keep on wanting to say viewers, but I guess listeners the right term. Yep. Um, about Android being this uh, platform by developers and for developers. And what, 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 the reason I don't run many Android devices right now is when I started publishing apps, I realized how little care was done in checking to make sure that an APK wasn't evil. Right. That I'm scared to run Android now because when I realized what I could be doing, I'm sure other people are. Well, and we've had plenty of news stories around exactly that. And, but the yeah. carrier's response to that has been to remove the, the Google App Store from the phone. Yeah. But some of that is about cost. It's interesting. People go, Android is free, and that's why mobile uh, uh, manufacturers like it. In fact, the license for including the Google App Store is almost the same price as the Windows Phone license. Wow. So the carriers are paying for the App Store as much as, you know, Microsoft is charging for the OS. That's why Kindle went, you know, I love Android, but I am not giving you this kind of money. So, I'm, you know, we're going to create our own app store. And, you know, I don't know that it's been successful enough, but, you know, uh, that is an approach they can take because it's open source and they can do whatever they want. Sure. Yeah. Interesting, interesting set of problems. This is far from done, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I do find with... Mo- starting to see more regular websites that have been mobile first designed that are simpler. Yeah. That it, there, there does seem to be as much as we're getting bloat in our web pages, the, the, the graphical design elements are simplifying. Some of that is, I think the, what is happening with, you know, sort of the flat and square idea is this idea of that, you know, oddly, uh, Microsoft sort of pioneered with this, Type is important, and 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 simplification and icons are important. Um, has really great, you know, moved out, and you'll see a lot of websites that are, you know, you were like, are you sure this isn't a Microsoft site? This feels like a Microsoft site. It's very type focused instead of, you know, gradient focused, like right. uh, you know, iOS w- was for a long time. Um, I'm sure that'll go away, and something, you know, will will take its place in the next few years. But right now, I think you're, that's an aesthetic you're seeing all over the place. I'm seeing it on my on TVs at Best Buy. I'm see, seeing it, you know, um, even in the uh, case design for for uh, consumer products. It's weird um, how much you know that sort of simple squareness has, has taken over, and Microsoft hasn't gotten a bigger market share because of it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering if it, this is going to persist for a few years because, you know, we don't change. This seems like a very fundamental change, and, and I don't think we'd make those fundamental changes very often. No. If you look at even the PS2 and the Xbox One that were announced, they're both, they both have the Metro aesthetic, the, the, the boxes themselves. Right. They're square, simple, big typeface. You know, it's, 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 it's surprising to me how, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for, you know, 
boxy cars to come back. <laughs> I think the design metaphor we're moving towards is the monolith from the Space Odyssey. I'm hoping. Oh, man. Just a big black box, nothing else. And everything with, you know, uh, in proportions that are all primes. Something that yeah. we don't have to think about. There's nothing going on inside there. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> Trust us. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah, theme in the news lately. Yeah, a little bit. Trust authority. We're, we got this. It'll be fine. Don't you worry. What could go wrong? <laughs> that is uh, frightening. Sean, do you have a, an, a, an actual process that you go through, be it tools and um, uh, methodologies for, you know, when you're starting a greenfield project? I do. Actually, I start with initializer almost always for kind of the first, uh, uh, the, the boilerplate or the, you know, the, the greenfield for a project. And it will allow you to select certain things you want in the boilerplate and then just give you a zip file which is a starter HTML, CSS, JavaScript yep. template. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know, I open it up in WebMatrix or Visual Studio or, or WebStorm, whatever, you know, kind of project I'm, I'm dealing with. And, uh, you know, I'm writing pure HTML and then bringing in libraries as I need them, you know, Angular or Knockout or whatever the project uh, um, is purposeful, uh, um, whatever the project needs, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hev- heavily reliant on, on, uh, Firefox as my tool set for actually doing the CSS and JavaScript development. Yeah. In that, um, the web developer toolbar available in, in, in Firefox, um, is allowing me to do, you know, pop into the different sizes or show the different sizes. It, there, it has a lot of features to, to allow me to even see as I change the size of the screen what the resolution is of the browser window so I can do these tests for these different environments. Yeah. And it just comes down to tweaking and trying, trying and testing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do most of my CSS development right in the browser so that I can, as I change things, I can see if they're working. I don't change them in the CSS and refresh, change in the CSS and refresh. Um, because I want to be able to see what it's going to actually look like. And make sure that, you know, changing display from block to inline block is really going to have the effect I want. And doing those changes directly and, you know, whether it's Firebug in, in Firefox or whether it's with the Chrome tools, I'm able to see whether that, that effect actually gives me the desired uh, change. And then I copy the, the rule back into the CSS later. You ever use JS Fiddle? JSFiddle.net? Yep. I'm I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. I don't use it a lot in my day-to-day development. I'll use it for examples or when answering questions on Stack Overflow or things like that. So what jsfiddle.net is if you don't know, it's a little it's a website where you get four panes and you you have HTML, you have JavaScript, you have CSS and then you have the output and you can just type these little snippets and you can pick libraries that you want to use jQuery or you know prototype or um just about anything that exists, any framework out there, knockout. And you just go to town. You just start writing and running and testing, and it's all in one page. So you don't really have to, you know, worry about creating lots of files with a you know, it's great it's great to test out can I do this? Yeah, it's a very I like it because it's this, you know, very interactive experience. Right. Which which we sort of lost uh uh when people were doing all this back end code. Let me recompile, refresh, and hope it you know made the change I wanted. Because I'm I'm finding that I'm moving further and further away from a lot of uh, um, 
server side generation of my HTML. Mm-hmm. I'm, instead, I'm writing services and client side code. Yeah. Uh, I know that scares a lot of .NET developers out yeah, there, well, but that's what's called for. Yeah, but once they, I think once they embrace it, uh, um, they'll be a lot happier. I the the course in Pluralsight that does the best is my uh, JavaScript for C Sharp course, and that is really trying to help developers map the two because mm-hmm. that you know that was my initial challenge was okay I'm in JavaScript and I f- I think I want a class do I really want a class because everything's a class in .NET I, right. Everything ought to be a class, right? And <laughs> so trying to understand all those, you know, ambiguities between the languages because they look so similar, you know, help me sort of embrace JavaScript instead of, you know, have a disdain for it. So what's next, Sean? You're working on. Uh, I just finished a web API. A, 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 unfortunately, I keep on calling it the web API course, but it's an API design course for Pluralsight. I just uh, just launched a couple of days ago. So helping people understand how to design an API, not necessarily implement it oh wow so that developers you know uh aren't confused by it and help it may be uh, self-documenting and how to secure them and how to version them those sorts of things cool that really apply to anyone building any sort of web apis i can think of a few companies you could send them to that class mm, yeah is is one of them uh rhyme with smamazon <laughs> <laughs> So do you, do you think that this class would be um, good for even PHP developers? Would they be lost in a in a obviously a, a .NET guy talking about services in general? No, because we don't talk about the backend code whatsoever. We talk about how to design what the API looks like from the from the consumer of the API's view. Oh, great! That's great. Yeah, so it applies to you know Ruby guys, PHP guys, obviously .NET guys. Uh, no JS guys. It should apply to everybody because at the end of the day, what you want, you know, I talk about it almost like you develop UI. The U, you don't care what platform the UI is on. You just, the UI should work well. Same with the API. You don't know who's going to consume you. So you want to design it in a way that's going to be easy and not error prone for the, for your, uh, you know, users who happen to be developers consuming those APIs. Sean, that sounds awesome. Well, hey, thanks for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure, and I always learn a lot. Well, it was a pleasure talking to uh, to Richard. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he certainly did most of the talking, so. That's dark, man. <laughs> understood. That's dark. Understood. All right, we'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much.